I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Pen Sound Archive writing.upen.edu slash pen sound. Poem Talk once again has gone on the road big time across the pond and today Zach Cardner, Chris Martin, Anna Strong Safford and I are in London, England and are being hosted at the Keynes Library at Birkbeck University of London thanks to Steve Willey in Bloomsbury. Do we say this is Bloomsbury? We do. Yeah. Uh, The Keynes Library, having been once the home, the very home of John Maynard Keynes, whose economic ideas once were important in the United States, but we've sort of forgotten about that. But that's another story, and we're joined here by the aforementioned Steve Willey, poet, researcher, critic, organizer of several London-based reading series who is committed to the development of dynamic poetry communities. That's good. Did I write that? (laughs) No, that's me editorializing. I mean, you're committed to the development of poetry communities, and no doubt, because you're dynamic, they are dynamic, in the UK and internationally, whose books of poetry include Elegy of 2013, The Seven Arches of 2014, a collaboration with composer Richard Bullen, and Sea Fever of 2016, whose essays include Jade Sound Poems, Bob Cobbing, and The Poetic Institution, who teaches creative and critical writing at Birkbeck University of London, and who is hosting us, as I said a minute ago, thank you so much during our visit to London, and by Anna Strong Safford, whose poetry and fiction have appeared in Cleaver Magazine, the Pennsylvania Gazette, Peregrine, Poems for the Writing, and currently has a poem in issue two of Supplement, who has been a teaching assistant in the non-credit open online course on modern and contemporary U.S. poetry, also aforementioned called ModPo, for five years, six years really, and now is the coordinator of that project and is currently also in the MFA program at Temple University, where she also teaches poetry workshops. And by Luke Roberts, author of Barry McSweeney and the Politics of Postwar British Poetry, Seditious Things, 2017, a new book. And uh, books of poetry including False Flags, 2011, Left Helicon, 2014, Keep All Your Friends, 2014, and the forthcoming Sorbet, whose long poem, to my contemporaries recently came out in the Chicago Review. Congratulations. Who's edited a new selection of Barry McSweeney's poetry due out from Shearsman a year from this recording or so, and who teaches not many blocks from here at King's College London. Did you walk, Luke? I did. Yeah, that's good. Steve, <laughs> did you walk? I walked from the tube. I live in Whitechapel, okay. so I was okay, that's a little in that bit way. Of, yeah. yeah. Um, thank you so much, Steve, for hosting us. Not a problem. It's a pleasure. And, and Luke, for, for sitting in. I'm very glad to be here. Okay, great. Well, we're all looking forward to this. Uh, we're here today to talk about a long poem by Sean Bonney called Happiness. 20 pages of happiness have been published in Bonney's book of 2015, titled Letters Against the Firmament. And wow, what a book that is in totality. But we'll be discussing not even all of the happiness sections that are excerpted in this great book, and certainly not the whole of the great book. But as per typical strategy in Poem Talk, we'll pick some poems, and we've picked the four 
first four pages or poems or sections of happiness. So those who have the book, and if you don't have it, please order it. Um, published by, how do we pronounce that? Anatharman. Anatharman. Yeah. Letters Against the Firmament. If you have or can get a copy of this book, you'll be finding our poems on pages 120 through 123. On Sean Bonney's Pen Sound author page, one can find three different recordings of his extraordinary readings from happiness. And the version we will hear was recorded here in London in 2011. So here now is Sean Bonney performing four sections from happiness. September 2003. We were wondering why the poets were silent. We, children's books, whiskey, record shops, bombed orchards, paracetamol, refugees, circuit boards, the sun, god of fire. There we have a series of verbs. They pass to and fro as if no one had seen them. They go in and out of random houses, signal towers, border towns. The course of study is that simple. The legality and opacity of poets. The noises scratched into them. Real constellations, beggars, economy, detonation. December 2009, a review of the year. A hell for the hands, for the hair, for the mouth, for the law. An entire symphony. 360 degrees. Supernatural sobriety of discontinued nouns, the reservoir at dawn, direction multiplied by velocity, glimpses of improbable harmony. Mayday. The alphabet was a system of blackmail, complacent would skate on our regulated senses. Sister, I hear the thunder of new wings, some crap about the imminence of vowels, etc. A. An offensively wholesome social milk. E. Understood fucking as a swarm of conformity was I. What was locked there was chatter, flies, etc. O. A stringent regime of structural reform and U. Well, targets, neutrality, a closed circuit of abstract numbers. And us. Locked out. The alphabet was, ultimately, not ours. In any case, its mythological shells, its crumpled octaves and spectra zilch. The conversation a hierarchy of... Eclipse, as in a universe infinitely compressed. Our desires lack density and social flame. Our silence is powerful. The voices you strangle today. Early 2012. The latest news is political flashes superimposed on our rooftops. It is thin, our cynicism, the latest distinct word. Sometimes... When a specific distortion in the vowels is achieved, we can hear heaven. It is a kind of wall. All of our clear musical nouns. The morality of our achievements singing on the scaffold. And the riot squad have denied everything. Our laws and our tastes, this is harmony. Every possible combination of peoples and phantoms. Our sobriety and victims, this is our alphabet. Sometimes we get sick of our pious barbarism. We leap screeching into hell, our immense, unquestionable affluence. I understood money as a knife would use that centrifuge. London, rotating embers of an abstract city, capital in red and black. It was sleeping, we were awake inside it. 
the opposite is also true, has blocked the antimatter of the speaking eye, has secreted memory, confronted its being as bourgeois love, that cannibal monstrosity, wherein government is at war with thoughts, productions of transparency, a pretty little enzyme dissolved our face's history, privatised the place and the formula, consciousness in exile, mass without number, insurrection is value, meanings excoriate the enemy language. Steve, three of the four of these poem sections, and then probably three or more of the excerpts from mm. the rest of Happiness, begin as time-stamped diary entries. Why is that important to you as you read this? I mean, you were here, you were around for at least the, I think, 2010-11 disturbances mm -hmm. that are being marked here. You weren't around for the one, uh, the Paris Commune of 1871, which is a key reference in the last of the pieces he excerpts. But what's the point of the diary-likeness? Well, I was speaking about to, to Luke before, saying, what happened in September 2003? Remind me. And I think that's part of the point of the poem. It's, it's, it's saying, well, what do you remember? What do you remember of your past? Um, what can you access of that memory through the date? So what does that date stamp um, do to your kind of memory? And sometimes the, the need for collective memory in that space, because you need to talk to other people to remember. So in part, it's, it's about kind of a constellation of different dates um, to create meaning and to make us think of the kind of history of the poem as being an interpretive frame for it. Yeah. Um, for me, that's, that's the first point. But then it also makes you think of very particular things. So September 2003, the Iraq war is still going on. It forces you to kind of think, well, what in the past is relevant to this poem now? Yeah, that's great. A great start. And Luke, you know, Steve just sort of implied that this is a, maybe a, a, an alternative uh, history, a kind of narrative mm. of the left, right? So yeah. of the of the quasi-socialistic or anarchic young left, yeah. new, new left. So September 2003, we've... Thanks to Steve, we've got that right. May Day, of course, is is May Day. It's uh, it's it's May first. It's the day of the historical left, and all the way at the end, eighteen seventy one, is the Paris Commune, and he's interested in Rambo's response to the demise of yeah. the Commune. So this is kind of left history, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think these poems really grew out of the response to the election of the coalition government in the UK in, in uh, May twenty ten when the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats joined up. And one of the, things, one of the first things they did was raise student fees. Um, and the students in November 2010 uh, used to uh, gather for their marches just near this room that we're in, um, and then march down to Parliament. Um, and these were really intense and uh, exciting demonstrations uh, that were met often with a kind of violent um, opposition from the police. And I think these date markers that Sean has in these poems in Happiness are kind of ways of making sense of that kind of uh, turbulence that you get in these kind of historically dramatic moments and a way of kind of thinking through the historical um, uh, processes of revolutionary politics, basically. Sean Bonney, in his letter on poetics, which is the epilogue of this book or the last piece in the book, he really has to think his way through what might be described as a th trap. He wouldn't like the phrase middle ground, I'm sure. But the, on, the, on, the, on the one hand, the student movement fails poetically because it's all slogans, 
or the poetics of the student movement. On the other hand, the development of derangement of the senses writing for its own sake is a kind of avant-garde that's very empty, a conceptualism, for instance, that's very empty. So he, he's not happy in either camp, as it were. And that's a problem. You yeah, know? I think it is. And I, I, again, it's, maybe it's, we're going too far away from the close reading, but there's certainly a, a, a line from one of his poems where he talks about saying, yes, I gave readings in, in the protests and the occupations and they did nothing. You know, so, the, yeah. so there's, as much as uh, Sean is interested in the political solidarity that poets can express for their work, there's always a self-critique there about the efficacy of that um, yeah. gesture. This is our topic, it mm -hmm. seems to me, in these excerpts from happiness, you know, what poetry is appropriate for, what poetry is commensurate with the situation. Um, so, so speaking of close reading, Anna, um, May Day, in the second poem of ours, May Day, the alphabet was a system of blackmail complacent, and later us and us locked out, the alphabet was ultimately not ours. What do you make of that? I it's a think, problem um, for a poet if the alphabet yeah. is... Absolutely. Yeah. If the alphabet's not yours. You know, what are you writing with? Like, what's your tool? What's your, what's your text? Right. Um, if I think, um, something I was thinking about when Steve was talking was that something that's so amazing about this poem is the way that the sort of poetic language and the language of protests are really clashing with each other. And in the May Day, like what an amazing poetic gesture, right? To take May Day, capital M, capital D, as like a, you know, it's the first of May. It's a celebration. It's turn like, it into a cry for help. And it turn it into mm. a cry for help by clashing is that, into it. Is that May Day? May yeah. Day, May Day. The alphabet is, is blackmail. Yeah. Help me out of this alphabet problem. Right. So it's clearly that he's, he's uncomfortable with the language of both, I think. And that, that level of discomfort is, is so evident in the way that this poem is not even comfortable with its grammar either. I mean, in his performance, he treats periods the same way he treats commas. Luke, in that poem, we have the vowels in order, A through U, set up. And, of course, Rambo's vowels is crucially yeah. important. You want, let's bring Rambo into this. Yeah, so it's in the, in the poem Delirium, when Rambo says he uh, invented the colors for now, doesn't he? Kind of this, uh, this kind of alchemical relationship to the language. With, I mean, there's two things, I think, that um, are interesting about these particular ones that or in this moment in the poem, because I think he does it in a couple of other sections of the of, of the happiness poems. But when he says, you know, I, what was locked there was, oh, a stringent regime of structural reforms, and you, well, targets, they, they're both, they're kind of, uh, the O there is like an apostrophe, right? By apostrophe, I mean like a, an yeah, announcement, right? right? Right, As well as you being the targets, right? Um, so language is always kind of slippery and suspicious, I think, in these in these poems. One of the things about the alphabet, I was wondering about was whether or not it's going to combine into these more malevolent forces, right? Like um, I was thinking of like the UK, UKBA, which is the UK Border Agency, and the DWP, which is the Department for Work and Pensions. So like the initials of the alphabet are going to uh, be accidentally summoned in these poems, you know, if you're, if you're dealing with the yeah. ghosts of, of Rambo mm -hmm. and revolutionary history, you know? Yeah. Steve. We should, we should uh, very quickly, which, which yeah, that, that kind of... A kind of imagination of what the what the poem could do with its alphabet is is kind of and, and particularly thinking about law and 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 the kind of government agencies that almost hide themselves behind their um, what, what's the correct term acronyms the acronym of, yeah. of you know right. it, it, it's about legality and opacity which is a phrase that comes up on the on the 
on the first page. You know, they kind of hide themselves behind the law and behind language. And poets can do that too. He seems to be accusing his colleagues maybe of hiding behind the institutional acronyms. Oh, yeah. I mean, or at least the, you know, the mythological shells and crumpled octaves of the alphabet. So, Steve, he writes in this, um, this wonderful letter to po- on poetics at the end, Re- read Rambo's last poems. They're so intensely hallucinatory, so fragile. The sound of the mind at the end of its tether in the process of falling apart. The sound of the return, this is the demise of the communards, right? The sound of the return to capitalist business as usual after the intensity of insurrection. The sound of the collective I being pushed back from the collective, the I as collective, mm-hmm. which is a great derangement, back into individuality. He's making a Marxist claim, post-demise of commune claim, for a political reading of Rambo, a revolutionary reading of Rambo. And that's not the first time that's ever been done, but it's mm. his major point here. Do you want to say something about that? And and maybe somehow we can get back to the vowels, I don't know. <laughs> maybe, yeah. I mean, um, it certainly um, describes a kind of desperate feeling of defeat and confusion that that I certainly experienced going on the student protests where you felt there was such a sense of collective action and, and energy where um, the direction of your own body on the street was beyond uh, your individual control. You know, you're part of a, of, of a group which weren't even sticking to the, to the authorized routes of protest, which is one of the things you have to do in this country if you want to protest is kind of clear the protest of the police. And then having that experience uh, be kind of cut off and, and, and frozen, then you're left with, well, how do, you, um, how do you incorporate that experience of the collective back into the self? Um, is that defeat or can, can you somehow um, see that as an enriching process? And I think that's, what the, 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 that's why the poem's so beautiful is because it's making that struggle. And it is lyrical because it's like, well, how do I take the language of the collective into the lyric, into the eye? Yeah. What would that look like? Yeah. If the poet's response, as he says in the first line, and I presume in The Full Happiness, this is the first poem, I'm just guessing. There it is, September 2003, we were wondering why the poets were silent. Well, we is funny because we is often the poets, his community. But there's another we that's wondering why some part of the group or all of the group, why poetry is silent. And yet, if the alphabet isn't yours, then silence makes sense. At the end of the next poem, we have a quote, which could be a bit of a fragmented slogan, maybe the sort of slogan he's unhappy with, or maybe a new version of a slogan, maybe a deranged slogan, our silence is powerful. I, I mean, I looked, that, I looked that quote up, and it's, again, it's an interesting one. So um, it, the quote's from um, August Spies, who on the 4th of May, 1886, uh, was involved in something called the Haymarket Affair. So an, an anarchist... Haymarket Affair in Chicago, Chicago in yeah. the U.S., and, and in his kind of final words to the judge before he was executed for, uh, he says, you know, yes. our, our sil- it's, a, it's a truncated quote, our silence is powerful, the voices you strangle today. Um, so, so again, it's, it's, so it's kind of on, the, on this particular section, the second page, there's kind of this constellation of, of anarchist sources because you have August Spies, there's a, there's a quote above, Sister, I Hear the Thunder of New Wings, which is from, from Shelley, Prometheus Unbound. Um, just after the, the Furies come together and kind of say, unleash hell on, on Prometheus. And then you have the Rambo in the middle. And it's so there's a kind of a constellation kind of 
of collages, which so it's, if the first page is a constellation of dates, how do we move from 2003 to 2009? And the second page, we have a constellation of sources, which bring us back to particular dates. Wow. Nice. Yeah. That was great. You've both heard him perform live. What's that like? Great. I, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's the most... Uh, most kind of vital poetry I've ever heard and you feel it in your the bo- most well because Sean, Sean kind of there's a rhythm to his body when he reads the poem which I can't help but now imitate when I hear it even being recorded so there's a kind of agitation of the flesh that I feel when Sean reads which I don't know how much that comes across just in the recording but you know if there's a kind of incantory nation notion to it but it's but it's also a cutting it's not a something you get lost on it's something lost in or, or it's not a kind of dreamlike incantation it's something it's an incantation which makes you more awake yeah yeah Luke, yeah. yeah i was just going to say thinking about it it's as if he doesn't breathe out when he reads right just all of these gasps that take in more kind of um more energy um really great reader one of the one of the best um, but like Steve says, it, his, his poetry, there's something percussive to it as well, where um, it, it, it keeps you alert, right? And wants to intensify your, your agitation. It's, it, it wants to agitate you. Um, this, this, for me, raises a question Anne and I were talking about before we went on the air. So I'll throw it back to you in a second. You know, it's called happiness. And everything you could look up about Sean Bonney on the web, whether it's accurate or just BS, says something like, to quote one site, um, he's said often to write in an, quote, angry voice. Uh, and there's a reference always to his creative and controlled anger, which is sort of having it both ways. Um, Anna, we, you know, I think angry voice, do you hear it? I do. I hear and the frustration. Why is it called happiness, if so? Yeah, right. I mean, I hear the frustration. I hear the frustration with systems. I hear the frustration with movements that aren't maybe getting off the ground. I hear the frustration with, you know, why the poets are silent, why the why certain communities can't coalesce. But I also hear so much um, celebration of language, even if the alphabet is full of mythological shells and difficult, you know, illusions and symbols that we can't crawl out from under. The form of his protest ultimately is a poem, which means, you know, that there has to be some level of, I'm using language to express this. I'm using language as my like preferred method, even if the language of protest sometimes falls flat, even if the language of scary government agencies get to hide behind acronyms, like Luke was saying, we have to like recuperate that somehow. We have to like recuperate some of that power. And I think the way that he's able to um, compress all of that anger and force it into these like relatively short lines um, and with that percussive performance, there is, I think, at least some level of happiness or joy you hesitated when you got to the word happiness there, but I did. And I'll just throw I didn't in want Luke. To pun it, I'll just add, Luke, the two of the four poems that we are using are sonnets. Now, not that sonnets are supposed to be happy by no means, but you know, sonnet is associated with a kind of a the stay against confusion that one can get from poetic form. So, happy, Luke. I'll say two things. I think I think that the happiness that this that is the sign that the, these poems uh, go under is the happiness of political demonstration and riots. Right, that the moment of happiness is the kind of ecstasy of dissolving into a collective uh, subjectivity. 
it's i mean happiness is is a good approximation for it but maybe joy or ecstasy or would be, would be better um it's also funny as well to call it happiness and then for it to be it despairing is. and violent and I full mean, of terror in, you in know in a section we didn't plan to discuss in detail steve refers to downing street refers to london as all geometry euphemism for civil war and then a, 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 se- a space separator and then when you meet a tory on the street cut his throat it will bring out the best in you. <laughs> yeah. So what is happiness there? <laughs> I was hoping we would talk about that. Yeah, I was, I was kind of nervous. I was yeah. like, maybe somebody will that bring it a, up. That's, a, that's um, you know, a poet, a poet can say that. I assume you can't be tried for sedition. Well, I was saying to Steve just before that a um, fairly prominent journalist um, who was also involved, I guess, in the student mo- movement and so on, a guy called James Butler, um, with Navarra Media, it got banned from Twitter for a while for um, for quoting this, for, quoting for just this. quoting Sean's poem. So yeah. this is seditious language, in, in, yeah. in a certain extent. So when he, when he talks about you know the legality and the opacity of poets, you know this is sometimes this is close to the threshold of, mm. of of what it might be permissible to say in a poem. I think that that that, that part um, of the poem um, always just makes me smile so much because it's 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 just um, incredibly um, audacious. And, you know, it's very it's very kind of moral in a way, <laughs> but it, you know, and it makes you think through the the, the how would you um, know um, a Tory on the street just by sight, right? It's kind of like, but I've 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 read this poem in two places, often with um, between sets. Um, through the band in London it got a great response from an audience in in Birmingham um, and I I read it at a very different kind of um, music event there was just this deathly silence that emerged from the from the crowd and it was almost like that part of the poem was a was a measure of how far away that collective were from being able to experience happiness in this kind of linguistic challenge Um, and it was like wow if this is revolutionary poetry if if this is the the violence of a revolution where this actually might happen, which, you know, because most revolutions are violent at some point, the poem becomes a measure of our distance from the reality of, of the revolution. You're saying something about class and academia, no? Or art, art, artist circles that are likely to form in London? At- I think that's right, yeah. yeah. I was definitely, there was definitely a, a fixed, yeah. In Birmingham, it was not a space in which this poem... Uh, I mean, it was, it was great. It was great reading it in that space. It made the poem feel more real, but it definitely changed the context. Social context changed the poem mm-hmm. in, in a way in which I've never experienced with another kind of po- any kind of poetry before. So a Rambeauian Marxist is going to be very uncom- made very uncomfortable by the gap between those two settings that you described. I mean, I would have thought so, but then again, you know, Maybe if Sean was reading it, it would have, it'd have it more, would, oh, it'd right. have more it charm. Okay. <laughs> Maybe. But um, I, rem- I remember the readings that um, Sean gave during that period, 2010 through 2011, 2012. And I remember the first time I heard him read those lines, everybody in the audience, it was electric. Everybody was like, oh, shit. You know, they were, it, was, it was shocking, right? Mm. But it also, I think, um, gave a lot of permission to uh, poets, younger poets as well, to, to say what you wanted, right? It's yeah. a kind of... One of the achievements of this poem, I think. Mm. Sometimes, when a specific distortion in the vowels is achieved, we can hear heaven. It is a kind of wall. All of our clear musical nouns. The morality of our achievements singing on the scaffold. 
and the riot squad have denied everything. Our laws and our tastes, this is harmony. Every possible combination of peoples and phantoms. Our sobriety and victims, this is our alphabet. Sometimes we get sick of our pious barbarism. We leap screeching into hell. Our immense, unquestionable affluence. Well, this sort of makes me think of... I, I don't think it's a delicate topic, but it's it's a it's a thorny one. Uh, Sean in the Sean Bonnie in the poems and also in the prose, he's upset at uh, mere bourgeois anti-communication. That is to say, opaque poems just for the sake of the derangement. Yeah, I think right. he's thinking of could he anything from Dadaism to sound poetry there, you know. I, I, well, if it's sound, it I mean, he, he, it, he, right? he come, he, yeah, yeah, he comes out of a, the cobbing mm. atmosphere, which I think we should talk about for the sound poetry stuff. But it looked like an attack on the or a separation from the neo Dadaism of certain anti communication conceptualists. I think about the alphabet, the imminence of vowels. A through U, and I think about the kind of pleasure that uh, Christian Buck, for instance, would get from Unoya, and the pleasure that I, for instance, get from that extraordinary derangement. So there's a difference here between the derangement of the senses that, a, and I'm not calling Christian Buck a neodotus, but, you know, from that gesture of that side of Rambeau, and then there's this post-communard side of Rambeau, which is a derangement of the social senses. Can we talk about that? Um, you don't have to get into the a particular attack on particular conceptualists, but this is a kind of fork in the road, isn't it? Luke, can you start us off on this topic? Yeah, I think it's a, a kind of um, a clearing away of, of academic arguments about what poetry ought to be like. And um, one, of the, one of the things that this poem is playing with often is dogma, I suppose. And is it, is it going to be a dogmatic poem? Is it going to tell you how you should write your poems? Well, no, it doesn't. It kind of, it works through certain um, contradictions and it spends a long time dwelling in those contradictions rather than um, presenting a kind of prepackaged, um, you know, avant-garde, um, what's the right word? Like simulacro. Or, uh, that's that's so too much of an academic word for it. I mean, bullshit, right? Of, right. of conceptualist bullshit. So there is a certain Marxian analysis of the contradictions that uh, he's hoping will create engagement. Mm. Um, anyway, Steve, your response to this stuff about lame-ass conceptualism? Um, one way of resolving the contradiction might be this, right? Is to, if you wanted to resolve it, I don't think we do, but is, is to not imagine... Um, sound poetry that the kind of dadaism we shouldn't think about that just as a kind of a historical gesture something which is just a kind of enjoying the derangement of sound when there is actually an enemy out there that poetry needs to counter one way of, of kind of resolving the contradiction is to think about well those sounds only make sense in space um, within contexts so so even i would argue and i think maybe sean would disagree that 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 the the vitality of someone like christian bock's work um is politicized if it's read in the right space and maybe it's, it's being and you mean read in, in academic spaces or or you know so there's a there's still a there's still vitality in a scream if that scream if the context is right for it somehow it can be political yeah. still um but it needs to be aimed in the right direction um somehow. we need only add bob cobbing as i hope we'll do mm. in a few minutes um to see your point 
Yeah. I mean, there's a point, I guess, where we draw a line from Cobbing's influence to this is a, is, a, is a question. Maybe I'll ask it now, and then I want to turn to Anna for her comments on the um, problem of conceptualism or the vowels. I mean, in some, in some senses, Cobbing wasn't uh, as political a poet as Sean, by, by no means. By no uh, means, right? Um, and yet he... Cob- personally, he was, of course. Yeah. Um, but he was obsessed and very interested in um, and committed to setting up spaces uh, for poetry all the way from kind of you know better books on Charing Cross Road to anti-university of London to the poetry society it was his whole life was dedicated to setting up social spaces in which poetry could live all the way from the classroom to to the, to the street I think in, in a variety of ways so the politics in in Cobbing's work is in where is he making those sounds and the communities of poets he's building around those sounds where, where, you know, I have a problem with Cobbing's work is, is when um, the kind of sound for sound's sake is celebrated as some kind of radical gesture when it, when it's not, you know, when there is actual kind of a, a language of the enemy or the, or an authoritative language needs to be challenged. Uh, sound poetry doesn't, is not up to that challenge, but we take the sting out of sound poetry. If we don't, if we don't think about the, the kind of actions of poets alongside the sounds they make. Does that, does that answer the question? Yeah. I'm not sure it does. Yeah, it does. It's, <laughs> but what makes it more complicated? Uh, Luke, Anna, how do we, where do we go on this topic of sound as radical intervention? Well, sound is absolutely radical intervention, especially in this poem. I mean, if part of his argument is that he is resisting poetic opacity, right? If he's resisting the idea that poetic language necessarily has to be like highbrow and difficult and, you know, opaque for the sake of being opaque and like resisting all of those impulses, it can also then still be a process of estrangement. It can also still be a process of asking a reader to um, attend to distortion and attend to something different. And um, I guess drawing drawing attention to the reader's, you know, hearing something, hearing the thing that he, that Bonnie then wants us to hear in the language, like pay attention to this particular element of the language of protest or this particular element of the language of systems or governments or whatever it is, um, or this particular vowel sound or this particular noun. Um, I think that's really what he's after. I mean, in the, we haven't talked about this section yet, but we heard it in the section that begins early 2012. Mm. He says, um, I'm looking in like the third line. It is thin, our cynicism, the latest distinct word. Sometimes when a specific distortion in the vowels is achieved, we can hear heaven. You know, that's the ideal moment, the ideal expression of like, when we can get ourselves distant enough from the language that we use every day, we can, we can get to a kind of poetry that's going to make us. So that's a Bob Cobbian, John Cageian, Jackson McClovian utopian moment, but Unless then, it's ironized. but then you need this is harmony. Every possible combination of peoples and phantoms. It's not enough just to have the distortion of the vowels. You need the, the harmonies, right? Uh, a stacking of, of sounds on top of one another. It's it's vertical right. rather than l- right. linear, right? So, and you have singing on the scaffold in the middle as well, right? Yeah. So you have August yeah. spies or the Haymarket martyrs. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the pious barbarism, we get sick of your pious barbarism. This is a sonnet. So this is a sonnet that's busting out. One of the set piece statements people make or one makes about Sean Bonney's poetry overall is that he seeks to voice the 
the otherwise unheard voices. So if there's if those voices are strangled, if the alphabet seems to have been hijacked or made into a hostage, um, the kind of noise you hear from a Bob Cobbing piece is a kind of choking, that the voice is strangled. If, if he is singing for those voices or singing on behalf of those voices, I mean, that's a leftist cliche. I, the poet sings for the voices otherwise unheard, does that hold up here? Is that, is that an aim, Luke? I think it's weirder than that, right? I think that there's two things. Firstly, I think that re- rereading these poems, I was re- reminded of Spicer, most of all, right? And receiving messages, and Rumbo is like Lorca in After Lorca, um, or is, you know, structurally similar. And it's like receiving messages from the past and from the dead, you know? This is, this is dangerous stuff, um, and it's difficult. Um, and so there's, it's full of in- interference too. So these moments of distortion. Now, I, I think distortion is something that is valued, right? It's something good because harmony is treated with suspicion throughout this poem because... Direct I'm, language, smooth language, articulate language. Well, right? He says that specifically. Yeah. I don't know how, how far we can get into this, but I was looking up the, the, pre- the epigraph here. Yes. Um, he can says, we read the epigraph? It is impossible to fully grasp Rambo's work, and especially un saison en enfer, if you have not studied through and understood the whole of Marx's capital. Sorry for my French. Now that's, that's um, playing with a, a line from Lenin. And Lenin said, it is impossible to fully grasp Marx's work, and especially Das Kapital, if you have not studied through and understood the whole of Hegel's logic. Well, what's the move when you go from... In order to understand Marx, you have to read Hegel. To in order to understand Rambeau, you have to read Marx. It's not the ratio you thought it would be. Um, it's quite spectacular mm. to think about revising Lenin with Marx as a projected upon text on Rambeau's derangement. I mean, that's... That's, there's happiness <laughs> in the sense of pleasure. But it's, I mean, the Hegel's... I don't see a lot of pleasure in Lenin in 1915. Well, he's very excited by this text. It's full of exclamation marks. <laughs> and Hegel says things like, fire is physical time. It is this absolute unrest, you know. And Not say so, Hegel, I remember. I guess I'd better reread. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think another thing about this is that in times of kind of uh, dramatic social conflict, I think... Th- you, you can kind of gain a lucidity or, or clarity that you don't get at other points where you read something and it just makes sense. You just get it. I suppose part of what that epigraph is also doing is saying you can't read Sean Bonney without having read Rambo and Lenin. Well, that's and, certainly true. Which is so great. I mean, like, what better happiness is there than being able to position yourself in the lineage that you want to be positioned in, right? Yeah. Like, that's kind yeah. of the best thing to do. And yeah. what a great way to sort of foreground the process of collage and foreground the process of, or the relationship, I suppose, between times of political unrest creating some of the most amazing poems. It strikes me that Sean Bonney's topic, and he's brilliant on it and suggestive and generative, is that the, the way, this is a problem that in the UK, in London specifically in the 1930s, poets who had just come out of modernism tried to figure out whether Poundian fascism and Steinian, I guess, right-wing and, you know, uh, elitism or whatever, 
um, and Eliotic fascism, whether that was really the direction modernism was going to go, and whether the celebration of the derangement of the senses was going to lead us away from the revolutionary make it newism of, that we were excited about in the teens and part of the 20s. So the, the 30s poets in the UK and to some degree in the Communist Party of the United States in the US, that big question was, can revolutionary writing do anything except be uh, accessible mm. to the masses? That was the big question. I'm mean, simplified way of putting it. So it seems to me, and I, I'd love to get your reaction to this, it seems to me that Sean Bonney's topic, his main topic, is the way revolutionary writing, if it's too direct or too smooth or too easy or too articulate, becomes implicated in the power structure that it seeks to overcome. And he's really uncomfortable with smooth. Mm. What do we learn from this encounter with the problem of revolutionary poetry? Well, I think I think we learn that it's it can be pleasurable and worthwhile and useful to stay within the contradiction. I think, as Luke said, and also it's 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 more collective, right? His 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 mode is more collective than that because it's invoking dead voices and quotes you might get or not. It's invoking the whole of Lenin and Hegel, and you know that the collective he's trying to create. Is, you know, is is massive. It's huge. So there's a pleasure in excess. I guess is one of the things he's saying mm -hmm. yeah i think there's some, i mean there's something just simply defiant about it as well right not falling silent um is is an achievement i'm thinking of uh something like oppen of course um, he did fall silent mm. just at the point where he was most engaged with ac mm. daily activities mm. in the communist party of the united mm. states for decades yeah and then um i mean and you can find this this problem in lots and lots of poets who are involved in political activity. Mayakovsky says he had to uh, put put a boot on the throat of his song. Mm. Um, so this this is a this is always a problem for poets. Like what are you gonna do? Um, or even to sorry to interrupt, but just even someone like um, Reznikov or someone like that who who goes the other way and, 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 and produces poems which are kind of pure quotation and there's no lyric necessarily lyric voice or interruption well, that's arguable there is a lyricism well, it's, to, a, it's a way out of the writer's block yeah. at, the, at the point of the most revolutionary mm. engagement right it's just, just copy things down I suppose in his again the letter on poetics goes back to the student movement so he's asked to read I started thinking of the reason the student movement failed was down to the fucking slogans they were awful as feeble as poems yeah y-e-h yeah I turned up and did readings in the student occupations, and frankly, I'd have been better off just drinking. It felt stupid to stand up after someone had been doing a talk on what to do if you get nicked or whatever to stand up and read poetry. I can't kid myself otherwise. So this is, this is the poet pushing as hard against his own poetry as possible. How do, what's the way out? Well, I, I suppose it can feel a bit futile sometimes, you know you can feel a little bit helpless. You can feel like your method of engagement maybe isn't reaching the widest audience if you're doing something that's difficult. Um, and I think that was part of what you were saying about the communist poets of the 1930s in the United States. 
that they felt that their radical message had to be conveyed in a form that was more like quote unquote accessible mm-hmm. to the masses. It had to be in forms that were familiar to them. They were also told this by party functionaries. So that's <laughs> and I'm not sure that there are the equivalent of party functioning functionaries right. in this so that's probably not. Probably not. But that it's still a it's still a problem that the poet has to kind of contend with, especially if you have a particular set of aesthetics and a particular set of concerns and interests and language and, and part of your value is to estrange people from their from the language of slogan and the language of agency. Um, and what is poetry if not that? Right, right. It's so to t- take you away from the temptation to sloganize. Certainly. seems to me. But he, I think there's another part in Sean's work Down where he says he would, he would like, maybe he says it in an ironic way, but he'd like his poetry to, 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 to be equivalent of the slogan. And I think he's, so that maybe we need to kind of look back at the slogans that the, the students were using them they were very kind of often like quite socially democratic they were apologists they were they weren't extreme in any any means you know whereas sean was on on the on the marches with with a, with a megaphone you know saying we will we will bury your dead or your dead i come with the exact, the exact thing but you know it's like, like this is a slogan like you know this is this is what's the most extreme right like does it is it a slogan if you just shout it or it like <laughs> right like when does the slogan be we will but bury like, you I think right like slogans slogans become slogans for a reason right they yeah. become slogans because they because someone says it and then someone else says yeah that's what i feel mm. too like it but i think i, I want to go back to something that luke was saying about quotation and and i think that when when Luke was saying that, um, or I guess Steve also was saying that Reznikov sort of fall like sort of col- his own language collapses into just quotation, right? Like it's not that there's not value in quotation. Like quotation can be valuable because when a poet is quoting something that happened in an unpoetic context, you treat that language poetically mm. instead of treating it wherever it was, wherever it came from, like in whatever source it was from. So what's so great about that for Sean Bonney is that he gets to um, accumulate the language of slogan, the language of you know all these other all these other sources that he's um, drawing upon, and we then encounter that in the space of a, of a poem, mm. and that sort of recontextualization I think is really really important. And if we can learn to treat that kind of language as poetic, um, we can continue to attend to it. I think in mm. the way that Bonnie hopes that we will and in that sense it's not futile it's the opposite yeah saved i was going to say that the drama then is 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 to do with being understood by somebody else right that's the dream right (laughs) while you're also trying to understand something quite complex which is your historical moment which is you know when everything feels like it's in suspension or is is waiting to drop yeah i mean this is the this is the utopian end point where the speaking i becomes a speaking we and uh we can produce a transparency after all of the opaqueness and surface. There's a there, Luke. I'm going to throw this back at you because it's such an important topic. I was very confused by this until just now when I said what I just said. It's uh, in the fourth of the four sections, the one that starts. I understood money as a knife. The speaking eye has secreted or secreted memory confronted its being as bourgeois love, that cannibal monstrosity wherein government is at war with thoughts production of transparency. In a way, what's happening here, it's very confusing to me, but in a way what's happening here is that government is being blamed, I think appropriately, for doing the best it can to prevent the utopia we just described, where we all understand what we are thinking and saying. It's funny, the poetry that would result from that would finally be transparent. Mm. avant-gardists have been arguing for so long that transparency is the enemy 
Mm. And also, also potentially contradicts with, with that, the first poem where you know we have the legality and opacity of poets. So at the end, you have uh, some gestural transparency, but at the beginning, it seems to be the opacity of poets, which kind of keeps them safe in the face of the enemy. So it's, yes. So yeah. Luke, Steve just loaded up the problem. Now, can you solve it? Well, What's no. It mean there? I don't. I don't fully know. I get I get stuck with the word transparency because it seems like, you know, you have calls for transparency, don't you? You have uh, uh, movements towards transparency in government, which are kind of reformist. Um, I, w I wonder if transparency there is a kind of suspect word of, of kind of jargon. Um, or if it is, as you say, to do with clarity, thoughts, yeah. production of transparency. But then the the... The section or the line. I don't know what to make of these um, punctuation greater marks. Than, either. Greater than, less than. Yeah. I, I have a thought. One thought about that, but maybe it takes us away from the actual. No, go problem. ahead. He'll well, just that, it, just that it's a sign. It's a, it's a, it's a sign that denotes inequality right, mm. very quickly. So, so, so you can think about it as greater than, less than. But it's. But I think in essence, it's like, okay, I'm going to mark this poem all the way through with this sign of inequality. Things aren't equal, and there's a kind of. So it's. A, he doesn't perform it though. No. No. Yeah. Luke, do you remember what you were saying? Just what to do with this next section, a pretty little enzyme dissolved our faces history. So you have the thought. Is that the transparency? You know, Tristan Zara says thought is in the mouth, right? Doesn't. Um, and so you have the thought, in, which is in a head, but then the faces history gets dissolved in the, next, um, in the next line. So I wonder just what the relationship between these lines is. I mean, we haven't talked about it, it's sonnet form um, yet. I've mentioned I, it a few times. Yeah, nobody's been, I'm, I was wondering about it because I think that was the the Commons was that sonnets, sonnets as well. So yeah. he, Sean's book just before all this started, um, is a long set of sonnets, um, which are great and which I think kind of discovered some of the the kind of movement that he he said or freedom of movement I guess that he's able to get in these poems, especially in terms of um, citation of of kind of dead and forgotten sources. It's uh, it's almost like a he calls it the, in the tradition of the cuckoo song, mm -hmm. kind of stealing. But then, but then, so I think that this is like an example of the most compressed kind of thinking that's going on in in the sonnet. But I, I don't know if it's if it makes cumulative sense, right? No, because if you actually read those those these these pieces of, of grammar, I guess as words, it becomes even more confusing, but it's fun. You know, it was sleeping, we were awake inside, it was greater than. The opposite is also true, has blocked the antimatter of the speaking eye, has secreted memory, is less than, confronted its being as bourgeois love. There you, you, go. Know, you can keep, you know, there's a, there's a logic, but it's um, yeah. working against itself. There you go. It, that, that's a way to hedge against our tendency to try to create a consistent linguistic philosophy. Absolutely, uh, and especially since the, the poems themselves are sort of cumulative, right? Like they're, because they're not sort of separated, at least in this section, by, you know, the traditional move of, of having a title for each poem, and there's clearly, like, this is one poem, and then this is another poem, and then this is another poem. There is that still like that accumulative gesture. And, and the, the poems, I think, um, cross each other's boundaries just as much as they're in these self-contained little sonnet bubbles. A last thought on the second sonnet, the one on, I understood money as a knife. I, I, the, the last five words are, you know, uh, yellow highlighters, stars around it. This is, what, this is Sean Bonney in a nutshell right now at this moment. Meanings excoriate the enemy language. I mean, so that's a, that's a nugget. That's a yeah. chestnut. That's a great way to end a sonnet, almost, in a traditional it's, way to end a sonnet. It really just 
does it all. I mean, I find the hardest word in that. I mean, it feels like a slogan as well. It's it feels a slogan, like a slogan right? from mm-hmm. the future. Right? Yeah, maybe where, it's where, ironized. Where, where, I don't where, know. Well, I no, I mean, it's like all through this, it's been the, 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 the kind of um, meaning has been under attack because meaning comes from the alphabet. The alphabet is suspicious. It's blackmailing us. And, and yet here, meanings seem to be um, something positive, something that can strip the skin from the language and the skin's the organ of the body, right? So it's a, so it's, it's a, fl- somehow meaning is flailing, yeah. mm. flaying the enemy language. Yeah. Like a, you know, like any revolutionary poet, like so many revolutionary poets, in the end, they come back to meaning. In the end, we do need to come back to meaning. Well, and that's, and that's, that's again, going back to our previous discussion, that's why this poem is anti-Dada, right? It's, it's the destruction of meaning is not enough. There needs to be right. a new and set the, of meanings. The, 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 the neo-Dada hijinks and... Um, you know, the celebration of um, high wire act uh, work with constraint. This is sort of trying to be the flip side to that. Well, yeah, because con- constraint is is mm. um, is a reality for some people, right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, not being kettled by the police. Is you know is a, is a re- real experience of constraint in a protest, which has probably does have something to do with, you know, yeah. John Cage's use of constraint. Involuntary constraints. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, of course, the sonnet is a classic voluntary constraint, so we really are have to go around in circles on this <laughs> question. No, really, it's just mm. so profound. Okay, so let's go around. Uh, one last thought that you came here prepared to say but didn't have a chance to yet. Uh, Steve, do you have a final thought? I do. It's not a neat one. Um, I just was... I love the opening lines of the first poem and, and what the we means in it because... On the first reading, it says we were wondering why the poets were silent. And then the we gets defined as children books, whiskey, record shops, bomb torches, a whole sequence of nouns, which then we're told are a series of verbs. And so I was really interested and wanted to think about what it means for this poem to turn nouns into verbs and why those nouns become verbs. Mm. And I think it's something to do with um, Bonnie being interested in, in words which kind of somehow fall out of use or aren't seen and aren't named. And when nouns which are the names we give things, aren't seen anymore. They can start to move and do different things in poems. That's great. That was my final thought. That was a good one. Luke, can you top that? No. Um, I think um, what I came away with is to do with memory, really, and uh, the importance of memory to a particular kind of class experience, I think, and about disenfranchisement and how memory can be something that uh, works against disenfranchisement or works against um, uh, marginalization somehow. Um, So that what happens in Sean's poetry is that kind of trapped things and lost things are retained and given voices. But this doesn't seem to me to be a melancholic project, even though, you know, there's a poem in there called Lamentations. It doesn't seem finally to be lament. It seems to be something different seems to be something um, defiant, yeah. So it's not stuck in a melancholic mm. disposition. Great. And a final thought? I guess I'll just jump back in on how this poem feels particularly Londonish. And again, being only like a brief interlocutor into, the, into London, you know, just for these couple of days that we've spent here, Al. Um, something that I've been struck by a lot is just the like utter chaos like of this city. <laughs> And I mean that both in terms of the way that the streets like are, you know, 
we come from a, a nice, neat grid of a city. You know, but the, Philadelphia. Philadelphia. So, so that, kind of idealist. It is amazing. I mean, it was mm-hmm. planned like so much Blue later. Pen. What you see in a city like this that has grown up over so much history is the way that all that history has just gotten accumulated, how much it's accumulated, like the just detritus of history, and how some buildings have remained just because they've stood and other buildings have not, and what gets preserved and what gets taken down and what gets celebrated and who gets a blue plaque and like all of that. (laughs) So I guess what I'm thinking about is the way that, um, sort of picking up on something that Luke was saying about memory also, is the way that this poem is so much about how a city remembers violence and how a city remembers protest and how that memory is a collective human memory and also a collective city memory that it gets embedded into the landscape and never really goes away. Um, And the question I suppose is, what can we do, I suppose, as literary citizens um, to keep some of these memories from being like systematized or then like capitalized upon, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, like this is the house where Virginia Woolf lived, you know, like, is there a better way to remember things like violence and protest rather than just with, um, that kind of, that is a giant struggle mm, that a lot of people have written about. And it's just, um, you know, I think about the four or five books on the problem of commemorating and memorializing victims of mass murder and genocide, Mm -hmm. just an impossible project. Yep without some kind of commercialization or some kind of false representation. I'm just very jazzed by this. It's the beginning of this letter on poetics I keep quoting. Um, So I see you're a teacher again. That's how it begins. It's as as if a letter to someone. November 10th was ridiculous. We were all caught unawares. And that we, quote-unquote we, is the same as the we in these poems, as against them and maybe against you, in that a rapid collectivizing of subjectivity equally rapidly involves locked doors, barricades, self-definition through antagonism, etc. If you weren't there, you just won't get it. This puts me in mind of the studying that I have done of life lived in extremity. One of the remarkable things that a critic by the name of Terence Dupre observes in a book called The Survivor which is not only about uh, uh, prisoners in uh, Nazi concentration camps and death camps, but also uh, people in the gulags and other um, political prisons, Um, that the we that gets used, which had been in their training and the training of many of these European victims uh, was an I, it was a fancy way of saying I, uh, it was a, the royal we, I guess it's mm. called, uh, becomes a collective. And the shift in many of the writers from within these camps and within these extreme situations um, becomes a kind of super objectivity, which is to say the collectivizing of subjectivity becomes a way of saying we and any one we, any one member of the we can speak objectively for the whole which in normal circumstances is presumptuous and theoretically impossible, but in life in extremity becomes exactly what Bonnie is mm. talking about. And it really is a, if you, if you weren't there, you're not going to get it. It's very hard to look in on the outside from a, from a genocide or from a police state and, uh, and not poke holes into the theory of the collectivizing of subjectivity. 
so I, I really, I'm really interested in that move that gets made by revolutionary poets. Mm. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for all of us to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. So who wants to start? Steve, you look like you're ready. I'm ready. I okay. can start. So right, I, have, I have two. One is uh, there's a poet called Fran Locke, who's uh, London-based, L-O-C-K. Um, and she's got two books, uh, one kind of slightly older and one very new, which is, both are worth checking out. So one's called The Mystic and the Pig Thief, which is Salt 2014. And the other has just come out as a chapbook, as part of the Loudenham Chapbook Anthology. And she's one of three poets in, in that that's published this year. So that's a Loudenham Press. Um, and I've got one more, if that's okay. Please, is that, is that allowed? Please. Um, so, uh, a Palestinian poet called uh, Nawan Dawish, um, who um, welcomed me to Palestine last year. He's got a book called Fabrications, which is um, extraordinary. Um, it's, um, it's in Arabic, English, and uh, Spanish. Um, published by Al Field Publications in Palestine, and um, very much worth um, checking out. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you. Luke, gather some paradise. I should say that um, I'm here standing in for Andrea Brady and filling her serious boots, and she wanted me to mention um, some of the paradise that she's gathered, specifically um, the work of Verity Spot, which I'm very happy to do, um, and to, to mention, I suppose, especially this book, Trans Manifestos, that Verity published in 2016, I think, with um, Ship Valley Press, who also published just recently uh, a, a new book by Danny Hayward, which is called, it has this kind of prog rock title, One, Two, um, <laughs> like I slash II in quotation marks. But it's very good. Um, and it's printed on tracing paper. Yeah, eight and a half by 11 tracing paper. <laughs> yeah. That's really And I would, cool. yeah, they're, they're both um, uh, kind of ferocious, excellent poets in the manner of Sean Bonney, I think. Fantastic. Thank you. And thank you, Andrew Brady, for passing those recommendations along. Anna Strong Safford. I was going to say, do you want to do you want to do Peter since uh, Luke gave? We should shout out to Peter. We should Middleton, shout out to Peter, who's whose shoes I am filling, <laughs> coming off the bench uh, to fill in for Peter Middleton. Um, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take Peter's notes. I'm going to put them into a paragraph form and ask him if we can put it in the program note that will accompany this. That's a great uh, idea. In jacket too, because we miss Peter and Andrea. Yeah, that's a great idea. Fantastic. Well. I, my gathering paradise is a poet born in Bethlehem, who's a Palestinian poet also. His name is Ahmad Amala, A-M-A-L-L-A-H. Um, he is yet to find publication in a book. He is writing in English after many years in the United States. He's in Philadelphia. Please have a look for his poems, some of them online, and as they emerge, I just read a, a set of six or seven of them and they're they're just really amazing ahmad amala well that's all the alphabet as a system of blackmail we have time for on <laughs> poem talk today poem talk at the writer's house is a collaboration of the center for programs in contemporary writing and the kelly writer's house at the university of pennsylvania back home in philadelphia and the poetry foundation poetryfoundation.org thanks so much to my guests luke roberts steve willie and anna strong safford and to poem talks directors and engineers and audio experts and filmists film getters today zach cardner and chris martin and to poem talks editor the self 
same amazing Zach Cardner. And a shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. This is Al Filreis, and I hope you'll join us for another episode of Poem Talk. <laughs>